HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. With more than 235 wineries, 65 restaurants, and some of the nation's most talented chefs, Taste Washington is the ultimate taste test. Learn more at tastewashington.org. Welcome to Meet in 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. Yesterday was Valentine's Day. We hope it was lovely, whether you got that dinner reservation for two or stayed in for a cheesy rom-com with friends. While Valentine's Day can be an excuse for extravagance and romance, it's just as often dismissed as a hallmark holiday with little real sentimental value. Regardless of your personal feelings about the holiday, it is a big day for the world of food and hospitality. Billions of dollars are spent on fine dining, and restaurants get creative about ways to maximize their profit, like renting extra tables and chairs and expanding hours to fit in more diners. Dylan Hoyer kicks off our show this week with a report from Shansan's Dessert Bar in Manhattan, a popular Valentine's date spot. One floor below a French bakery on 23rd Street is an intimate dining room. Converted from a Prohibition-era casino, now serving a six-course dessert tasting menu on any given night. Chanson's Dessert Bar is the creation of chef Rory McDonald, who offers modern innovations on traditional confections. For those who appreciate the richer things in life, it's a no-brainer for a Valentine's Day reservation. But despite the cliché connotations, the staff are prepared to make the holiday memorable by forgoing what's expected. We try to keep it as themed to Valentine's Day as possible without being, there's not going to be hearts and roses per se because that just feels a little bit common, which you would expect to see. We operate on the element of surprise, so we try to catch guests off guard as much as possible. That's Jeff Warner. He's the general manager at Chanson's Dessert Bar. Valentine's Day is what we uh, refer to in the industry as a blackout day. I think I have worked in the 13 years I've been in the industry, 13 Valentine's Days. Jeff strives to provide excellent service every night. But Valentine's Day brings extra pressure for the staff, if not from the establishment's diners, from the additional logistics the night requires. Because Valentine's Day is a special holiday, we're doing a different menu than what we typically do. Not only is it a six-course tasting menu, it's actually going to be an eight-course tasting menu. We uh, normally do two seatings, but on Valentine's Day, we do three seatings. The atmosphere is one of controlled chaos. 
but I wanted to know whether they were prepared for the unpredictable. On a holiday celebrating love, were they expecting any proposals? Seen a few proposals, not on Valentine's Day, unfortunately. I've seen some as random as we have no idea that the people are going to do that. They just come in, and the next thing you know, the, uh, the man gets on one knee and proposes to the girlfriend. Or we've even had people that have reached out to us in advance and have tried to plan something to set something up, whether it's filming it secretly or you know, writing a message on a plate or things like that. We always try to bend over backwards and do something a little bit you know, extra. Although without divulging too much information, we may or may not have something in the works here soon. The staff were eager to introduce an element of surprise wherever possible, including the menu. Champagne and chocolate were swapped out for bright red prickly pear cocktails and other unconventional ingredients. One of the things that we've showcased here on the menu last year that, that seemed to be a big hit was um, a dish that actually plays with caviar. We showcased a vanilla bean panna cotta that happened to be, as you'd expect, on the sweeter side. We took a little bit of zest from fruit like lemon over the top just to give it a little bit of depth of flavor and then a little quenelle of caviar right over the top. There's something incredibly celebratory about caviar, so it seems to fit the bill perfectly for Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, the guests at Chanson's dessert bar likely felt that their experience was whimsical and romantic. But in fact, each element was part of a meticulous process that began long before they arrived. Our next story takes us from desserts to drinks. Ariyama Long explores whether Valentine's Day's signature pink and red hues are boosting sales of rosé. Valentine's Day just passed, dousing the city in shades of red and pink champagne. February 14th is actually one of the top holidays for wine sales, pulling in millions of dollars every year. I mean, even Drake co-founded a line of luxury champagnes, including a rosé, last month. But what makes the pink drink so popular? Rudy Eilers, the education director at the Sommelier Society of America, has an idea. You know, once people realize, oh my God, you know, pink wine is not just white Zinfandel, a sweet uh, rosé from California, but is a delightful, dry, refreshing beverage, I think then everybody just realized it's a, it's a great drink and it's not an inferior beverage. Rosé's popularity is well established nowadays. 15.6% of all champagne shipped to the U.S. in 2017 was rosé. It didn't always represent this idea of bubbly luxury on V-Day, though. A lot of people held that it was unsophisticated over the years because of misconceptions about its taste and color. Pink. The color of love, sweetness, fun, and usually femininity. The other thing is, I think because pink is such a beautiful color, people like to drink that now. And one thing, you know, um, I also noticed, you know, what do we do nowadays when we eat or drink something? We take pictures of it and post it on social media. And pink looks good. It's not proven whether pink looks better on social media in comparison to white or red, but rosé's consumption is on average 10% higher in the millennial age group. And with the exponential boom over the last decade, the drink's hue is 
definitely marketable. Social media has had a huge role on uh, the rise of rosé. You know, from celebrities like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or propagating this, you know, rosé luxury lifestyle. We had a 60-degree day in New York in February, and all of a sudden, um, you know, I see on my Instagram feed ads popping up for wine spritzers and rosé and, you know, pictures of people on yachts sipping uh, pink wines. That was Victoria James, accomplished sommelier, beverage director at New York City's Coat, a Korean steakhouse, and one of the biggest rosé advocates. She literally wrote the book on it. Color is something that plays such a huge role in how we perceive the wine. And rosé in particular, I think that because it has, you know, oftentimes this light pink color associated with it, uh, a lot of consumers struggle to take it seriously or will connect it with holidays such as Valentine's Day or perhaps um, the notion that because it's pink, it's, uh, it's more girly, it's more frivolous, it's more fun. You know, I don't feel that my manlyhood is threatened when I order a glass of rosé or, God forbid, a, you know, a rosé champagne. You know, I don't care about that. It's, it's delightful. Surveys reveal that the number of men and women buying rosé in the U.S., Russia, and Australia are about the same. So guys are out here sipping their pink drinks, too. In her book, Drink Pink, A Celebration of Rosé, Victoria tested preconceived notions about rosé with some of the top sommeliers in New York. I uh, blindfolded them and in black glasses served them red, white, and rosé side by side. And many of them, surprisingly, were not able to tell the difference. Um, and so all of these things we connect in our minds, but does color really impact flavor and how it pairs with food? No. The wine experts can't even taste the difference between a rosé and a red and a white wine. Why do we see so many on the market? The rosé world, there's a certain horrible trend where a lot of uh, producers want to achieve this perfect rosé, salmon pink color um, because for some reason a lot of consumers believe that the light pink color means it's lighter in perhaps body or alcohol or sweetness, um, but none of those things are true and there's no correlation there. Um, but as a result, because all of these consumers are demanding the specific color, these producers are adding in not only coloring, but a horrible slew of, you know, other agents to alter um, the flavor or the way we perceive the wine. Rosés were among some of the first wines ever made. So its newfound popularity in the U.S. and around the globe is not that surprising. To all the couples this weekend with Valentine's plans, try to think outside the pink champagne and strawberries box. Definitely not chocolate. Anything with chocolate and strawberries. No, but instead you should have foods that like have some richness to them and have some weight, you know, steak, for example, and, and cheese is so great with champagne. Your palate and hopefully your date will thank you. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Taste Washington. 
a food and wine lover's wonderland, Taste Washington offers the most wine and food from one single place in one single place, including samples from more than 35 wineries, 65 restaurants, 60 exhibitors, and some of the nation's most talented chefs. Each spring, attendees can drink and eat their heart out over four days brimming with specially curated events that highlight the best of Washington State. The result of a continued partnership between Visit Seattle and Washington State Wine, Taste Washington is taking place March 28th to 31st, 2019. Mark your calendar for this year's lineup featuring the Red and White Party, Taste Washington on the Farm, the New Vintage, Seminars, the Grand Tasting, and Sunday Brunch. Learn more at tastewashington.org. Welcome back to Meat in Three. Now that we've covered the desserts and beverages of Valentine's Day, let's turn now to diamonds. But not the ones you're thinking of. Nina Medvinskaya has the story. While diamond-studded rings and necklaces are weighing on hearts and minds this season, a different type of crystals caught my attention. A salt crystal. Last week, chaos broke loose when the beloved diamond crystal brand Kosher Salt was threatened with extinction. And the unsettling situation certainly begged the question, is a diamond actually forever? Well, I mean, really... I started using it when I was working in restaurants, and this was 10, 11 years ago. It was the only salt that we used, and so I wasn't sure why it was the best, but as soon as I started having to shop for my own salt and would buy another kosher salt, I was like, wait, this salt is terrible. <laughs> Where's my diamond crystal? That was New York Times food columnist and cookbook author Allison Roman. She was one of several prominent culinary figures that fell for the rumors of diamond crystal salt's discontinuation. It all started when Chef Samin Nasrat wrote a desperate tweet reading, quote, Why Diamond Crystal? Why? End quote. And set up a flurry of panic amongst Diamond Crystal fans. I was just thinking like, oh, if that happens, that would be terrible. And so I just went on Amazon and I bought three boxes just, just to have. I go through quite a large amount of salt, as you can imagine. And I figured if they were running out, then three boxes would get me through however long they needed to replenish. Allison wasn't the only one to fill her shopping cart with the trending product. Frances Lamb, host of The Splendid Table, left work early and bought 10 three-pound boxes of salt at his local Brooklyn grocery, which he then proceeded to carry half a mile home. It wasn't quite like a Y2K doomsday prepper situation, but it was more just like a reminder that it is my favorite and that I should stock up and I should always have an extra box because the world is a crazy place and bad and unfair things happen all the time. And so if they were to have decided that like, we're just going to stop making it, I would want to be at least like a few months out to give me some time to grieve. Clearly, Diamond Crystal Salt isn't lacking in adoring fans. But what is it about the salt that evokes such loyalty from its users? It's about the texture. It has kind of like the perfect texture, like it's not too coarse and it's not too fine. If you take a pinch of it and you put it in your palm, you see like a few larger pieces and a few tinier pieces. And I just think it makes for much better and, and way more evening seasoning. Although the rumors of Diamond Crystal's discontinuation spread fast and far, no one knows why or how they got started. 
Cargill, the company that owns Diamond Crystal, released a statement assuring consumers that they can rest easy since the product isn't going anywhere. The only changes? Slightly altered packaging and container sizes. Concerned consumers exhaled a collective sigh of relief on Twitter, but many are still flabbergasted by the source of the rumors about this cherished salt. If there's another salt company out there that feels like they can do it better, like let me know because <laughs> there's obviously like a hole to be filled if that's the only salt that most professionals will use. So while most aren't eager to make their diamond crystal salt relationship polyamorous, this scare did force faithful consumers to reflect on their dependency. But at least for now, salt lovers everywhere can relax and hold their prized diamond crystal extra close this Valentine's Day. We'd be remiss to do a show about Valentine's Day without talking about foods rumored to awaken your passions. But we're going to skip oysters, avocados, and chocolate to examine a lesser-known aphrodisiac. Here's Kevin Wheeler with a story about a Bronx-made beverage with Caribbean roots. If you've ever eaten at a Caribbean restaurant, you may have come in contact with traditional beverages made from assorted fruit juices, spices, and herbs. Some of these drinks are purported to have special properties. They're often associated with vigor and vitality. Code words for aphrodisiac. One such beverage is peanut punch, a concoction made from evaporated milk, spices, oats, and lots of peanuts. If you've ever found this drink in New York City, there's a good chance it was made by Pat's Exotic Beverages. Pat's Exotic distributes to 50 different Caribbean restaurants throughout the five boroughs. Pat Lindsay is the owner-operator of Pat's Exotic. She emigrated from Jamaica to the U.S. in 1969 and founded her drink company 30 years later. For Pat, making juice is part of a family tradition. In Jamaica as a child, my grandmother would make these juices at Christmas time or on Sundays, just special drinks, and I learned from that. And then I add some of my... I just add some of my experiment to whatever it is that she did to create other juices. Pat didn't start out making peanut punch, but in 2006, she understood that there was demand for the milky, fortifying drinks that she claims men tend to favor. So she began to experiment with something her grandmother used to make. My grandmother would do an oatmeal drink. She would um, do oatmeal, but then I decided to add peanut to the oatmeal and to add cashew and almond and those other stuff to it. And uh, we sat down around the round table and we decided what names with some, a couple of friends, what names we're going to call it. And um, we came up with Magnum Plus. The Magnum Plus is a dairy-free riff on peanut punch. For those who haven't tried it, the taste closely resembles eggnog, what with the cinnamon and other spices it contains. Eventually, this line of beverages expanded to other traditional beverages that are said to enhance a certain kind of male performance. The stagaback, it's an old Jamaican term, Jamaican drink from way back, and we just just decided to bring it back into existence and to add some of our special touch to it to make it special. And it's, it's a drink that the men, be, they believe in. They believe it really does wonders. 
The Stagaback is similar to the Magnum Plus in that it contains almonds, though it replaces soy milk for cow's milk. The shifting varieties of nuts and types of milk provides variety in taste, but the main ingredient that gives each of these drinks its desired effect is known as sea moss. This was used as a substitute for some nutritional uh, effect. Uh, anyway, it was brought to Jamaica, it's been used, and so the Irish, the, the sea moss is a core ingredient for all of these drinks in restoring that vitality. That's Howard Lindsay, Pat's son and the CEO of Pat's Exotic Beverages. He says sea moss is also called Irish moss because it was brought over to Jamaica by Irish immigrants. This moss contains carrageenan, a thickening agent often found in store-bought dairy products like ice cream and chocolate milk. It's also high in nutrients like magnesium and iron. According to Howard, however, it's the carrageenan that gives sea moss its potency. Pat has heard firsthand that these drinks do work. Coming from the islands and from men who really were accustomed to drinking these drinks, I literally speak to men who really believe in it and believe that it really does something to their functioning. And so I, I think it, it has some truth to it, yes. That said, there have been no scientific studies to back that claim up. But yes, according to legend, these drinks do work and they uh, increase stamina and strength and all that stuff. <laughs> and virility, vitality, all of that stuff. While the effectiveness of sea moss and peanut punch may be the stuff of legend, these drinks still serve as a potent symbol of what it means to be from the Caribbean. I would say that it's very much a part of the Caribbean culture. Uh, men, you know, older generations, you know, Gen Xers, um, what do you call your folks, Mom? The greatest generation, the, uh, the baby boomers, as well as upcoming um, millennials. They all sort of, if they're from the Caribbean, they often drink these drinks because it's part of tradition, it's part of the lore of what it means to be, um, to be virile. According to Howard, that lore holds enough weight in the Caribbean community to create demand for Pat's CMOS drinks. Yeah, I mean, we were encouraged to make these products by men and women alike because this is part of the culture, and Pat's Exotic Beverages is part of, you know, the Caribbean and African diaspora. We try to produce products that cater to those, de those needs and desires, and these products are part of that. Whether you drink peanut punch for its purported powers or its deliciousness, you're engaging in a rich tradition of handcrafted drinks, one that Pat's Exotic Beverages is continuing today out of a house on a residential street in the Bronx. Right now, Howard and Pat are hoping to move into a larger space within the next seven years. They want to expand their business so they can make more drinks for many years to come. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. Keep an eye out for another Meet and 3 next Friday when we'll be honoring Black History Month at HRN. Special thanks to Dylan Hoyer, Ariel Malong, Nina Medvinskaya, and Kevin Wheeler for their reporting this week. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Liza Hamm, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production for this episode by Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson, with help from Amanda Wang. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
Meat and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.